visit fssystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. Here's to the farmer. Now let's go live to the Patent Block building in downtown Monmouth for the FS Ag Roundtable. Here's your moderator, Vanessa Wetterling. Welcome into the 2023 FS Ag Roundtable. We are live on this Monday morning from the third floor of the Patton Block here in downtown Monmouth as we get ready for our FS Spring Ag Roundtable brought to us today, of course, by our corporate partner at Growmark FS. Brendan Marshall is with me again today. Brendan, I thought Friday went very well. Thank you for being there and being a part of that Ag Roundtable. Well, thank you and good morning. And uh, yeah, it was a very good conversation and uh, I got some feedback from people that really enjoyed it too. That we're listening to the presentation and I'm looking forward to today. Yes, I am too. And if folks want to hear the one on Friday, it was uh, economic related. You can find that on our website at radiomonmouth.com. Our other partners include Midwest Bank, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Monmouth College, A. Eugene Miller Agency, OSF, the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, and Compere Financial want to point out that with us today from the Monmouth Roseville FFA chapter is Kendall Kane. She is with us. Also the United FFA chapter, Peyton Crane, both of our officers with us today and they will be asking a couple of questions at the end. Our intern, Katie Preston from Monmouth College with us. Adam Friedline on video today with Clear Profits. This will be available on YouTube next week. Kelsey Crane and Mike Weaver with the radio stations, of course, producing. Let's meet the rest of our panel. We'll start with our Farm Bureau President, Mr. J Armstrong. Jake, uh, welcome to the program again. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. I guess I haven't uh, misspoke too bad in the past since you keep inviting me. Well, you never know. There's time. Yeah, <laughs> preach. No, we're glad to have you here, Jake. Also with us today, David Zimmerman, CEO of Big River Resources, also been a sponsor of this program a long time. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Vanessa. Great to be here again. And I'm really excited to talk about ethanol a lot today. Ethanol is really getting a lot of press in the last couple of years, so we're happy with that. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, very exciting things going on, so I don't know. We have two hours today. We might be able to fill that with all ethanol if you really wanted to. We do have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Ron Moore is with us. A uh, big round of applause for Ron, recent recipient of the Master Farmer Award. Congratulations, Ron. Also, I found out today that uh, the state of Illinois might make the soybean the state bean. Say that again. The state of Illinois may make the soybean a state bean. Long overdue. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's, it's a lot better than a lima bean, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely, or pinto beans or any of those other kind of beans. But, no, thank you for the uh, call out on the Master Farmer. It's uh, it was a great honor and very humbling experience to be included with uh, many of those folks that I admired and looked up to, you know, in my volunteer career um, that, that went before me. So thank you for that. And welcome back to the program. We're looking forward to talking about soybeans, biodiesel, all of that good stuff. Also with us today, Senator Neil Anderson. You guys have been busy uh, at, in Springfield. Thanks for everything you guys are doing to work hard for the citizens of Illinois. Yeah, no, happy to be back here. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been burning the candle at both ends of session, that's for sure. A lot of bills going on. We'll talk about some of those. And thank you for 
your uh, being a firefighter as well, an emergency responder. Appreciate you uh, being here with us in your busy schedule. Thanks, Vanessa. So, uh, also with us, State Representative Dan Swanson, who's also a local farmer. Again, very busy in Springfield. You guys got out on Friday with a slew of bills, they called it. Yes, we got out on Friday on a kind of an interesting note, and maybe we'll talk about later on, of uh, how the House was actually shut down because of not enough members there, which uh, called them out on a verification vote and caught them voting switches with members not there. Oh, wow. So it was an interesting evening, and I too want to congratulate Ron for the, the award he received, very well deserved, and uh, uh, it's great to see local people recognized and for all the volunteer service they put in. So looking forward to today. Thank you, Dan. Also with us, Chris Gavin, one of our other sponsors uh, for this event, longtime sponsor with Midwest Bank. And uh, Chris, it's been kind of a, a whirlwind of a week last week in the banking industry. Yes, uh, it has been. Well, thank you, Vanessa. I greatly enjoy being here, and I look forward to learning a lot. And actually, it'll be nice to talk about the ag industry a little bit rather than the banking industry this morning. So been talking a lot about that lately. Yes, and real quick, though, Chris, you did come on the show with Brad Ray at Security Savings Bank. Uh, for those that may not have caught that, it, just a reminder of, of the security of our hometown community banks with our ag investments in this community. Yes, it was. Uh, well, thanks again for letting us do that. And, and actually, uh, kudos to, to you and all your people because I've had so many people tell me that they listen to that. So I'm always amazed at your listenership. Uh, whenever, you know, you're, when you're on the radio, everybody wants to tell you that and they heard you. But that was, that was really neat. Um, real quick, um, I just did some research on this because I mentioned, you know, one of the keys to the banking industry is credit quality. And uh, there's a thing called the Texas Ratio that, that we use to measure. I don't know why they call it the Texas Ratio, but they do. Uh, like but the Texas anyway, two-step. Yeah, it, it measures credit quality. So I ran this thing, I ran a chart, um, all banks under $1 billion in the Midwest, uh, their credit quality is an all-time high. So, and I think, again, that's, I, that's what I kind of thought it was and when I spoke on the radio last, but I just went out and, and verified that. And so I think that's a, I think everybody can breathe a big sigh of relief concerning the banking industry in the Midwest because you know, things are very sound, so. Okay, thank you, Chris. Also with us, State Representative Noreen Hammond, longtime uh, member of this program, and uh, gosh, we've known you, Noreen, since our Macomb days in the early 2000s. Thanks for, for continuing to be a part of this program. It's always a pleasure, Vanessa. Um, you know, I, I know we say it every time we're here, but um, it's a great learning experience for all of us, and I think with everything that's going on, we should probably just let the ag folks and, and Gavin uh, hmm. take the lead this morning and uh, the rest of us legislators will just sit back and listen. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Holly Spangler with us. You all might know Holly from our Canton when we owned the Canton Ag Roundtables back in the day. Holly was with us. She is the editor with Prairie Farmer Magazine. Uh, we are really happy to have you back on the team with us. Thanks, Vanessa. It's good to be here again. Those were fun days in Canton, and I echo what Noreen said. I always learn a lot here, too, and, and just kind of hearing what's going on, and uh, it's it's good to be part of it. Yes, and we're uh, just like with Delos Yonke at RFD and Rita Frazier uh, with you, Holly, we always open up and say our, our audio is your audio for your, uh, you know, it, it's all good to share in the ag industry. So do do your normal like you did last time and, and take your notes and feel free to use it. Perfect. Thank you. Also with us is a newcomer to the program. It is Senator Mike Halpin. Welcome, Senator. 
Uh, thanks, Vanessa. As you mentioned, I'm probably a new name to a lot of your listeners. I was formerly a state representative up in the Quad Cities. Uh, the new 36th Senate District uh, comes down here to uh, Warren County, uh, none of Henderson, but uh, parts of McDonough, Knox, and Warren. So happy to be here. Okay. And with us as well is uh, 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 Rob Elliott. He is uh, with Elliott Brothers Seed Company, longtime member of this program. Rob, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Vanessa. And uh, I, I would have to say I'm humbled by the distinguished group you've assembled here so certainly look forward to the conversation today as always uh, no shortage of issues or topics we can talk about so look forward to the discussion today okay let's jump right in I'm going to ask a question I'm going to start with Dan Swanson for a particular reason state representative Dan Swanson so we're going to start with the Mexico biotech decree and trade agreement uh, with Mexico and uh, you can remind us what's what's going on here They're basically they're saying they may not take as the number one importer of our GMO uh, corn. My question to you is, we heard on Friday, is this a political move that will die off after the election? I, I guess the potential is always there, Vanessa. Um, we get through the election and we'll see what happens, but uh, we've got to keep Mexico as one of our trade partners. Um, we rely on, on on Mexico buying not only corn, but our pork and our beef and other products that we, we grow locally here. So um, you know, we've got to uh, keep those communications open and keep the farmers, local farmers, and those in mind, too, and, and convince Mexico it's in their best interest that they continue to, to allow um, this trade in the country. And Rob Elliott with Illinois Corn, you could help set the stage on how this transpired and, and what do we think is a, will happen? Sure. Well, Mexico really is our number one trade partner in corn, and uh, so certainly a significant market that we want to pay attention to. However, at the same time, what they basically have done, and I'll back up just a little bit and say, I I, I get the impression that the uh, the wife of the president of Mexico is an environmental enthusiast, overzealous a little bit, and it's kind of her mission on this whole biotech deal. And corn is the only uh, product with biotechnology in it that they're addressing in this. But Mexico is on about their second or third decree, if you will. And basically what they've said is they don't, uh, in, in a time certain in the future, I don't I won't quote what that is. They don't want corn products that are uh, have origin with a, a biotech trait in them. But in their decree, they have issued a lot of different tenets, if you will, and specifications that possibly are meant to be fairly confusing and don't really make a whole lot of sense. But over and above that, I think the... Uh, the uh, the approach that the U.S. Grains Council uh, has um, worked with U.S. Trade Representative Ty, uh, it, it's a violation of the USMCA, and as a result, they have um, 
in conjunction with Canada, uh, who's in agreement. Uh, they're they're going to call Mexico on the carpet here a little bit to cut to the chase and say, you can't do this. We don't care about the specs that you've, you've tried to write into your decree. This is a violation of that USMCA trade uh, agreement. So that, that's the bottom line. Obviously, everybody wants to come out with a, uh, uh, a, a good outcome. Um, but but certainly the approach that Mexico's taken right now is is really troubling. Jake Armstrong, Farm Bureau President. Yeah, so I think on some of the readings I've been doing that that action looks to be in the first part of April um, for USMCA to be called. Um, when I was at President's meeting about a month ago, this topic came up right when they were announcing it, and that's what uh, Illinois Farm Bureau said right out of the gate was, well, this is a violation of USMCA. This is of top priority and serious concern for us, um, with us being in the top one or two corn producing states um, in the Midwest or in the United States. Uh, we take this very seriously, and they're on it. Um, everything I've been hearing, well, I'll just echo what Rob says, that this is uh, breaking the USMCA, and that we'll call them out on it and use this if we have to. But uh, I agree, this is a troubling thought. Um, and just some of the readings I was doing in preparation for this, um, I think it's 2024 is when they want to have no GMO corn or anything to do with glyphosate, um, whether that's corn or a different uh, product into their country. So, um, yeah, the stance they're taking is a little concerning um, for our industry, um, but we just need to adapt and um, keep doing what we've been doing. We, we tend to persevere through these. So I have faith in uh, our legislators and the people negotiating trade that uh, we'll get to the bottom of this. But, yeah, uh, that was not great news in 1st of February, end of January when they announced. Vanessa, I might add, that the, the, really the worst part of this humanitarian-wise is it puts all of the people that use corn in Mexico in jeopardy and puts them in a financial bind. Yeah. And they've even come to the corn world and said, can't you folks help us create some reality in this whole craziness? And the worst part of it all, the um, tortillas and everything else that the Mexican public eats daily would see a significant increase in cost and, and put put virtually everyone that can't afford it in Mexico uh, in a bad situation. So, b bad deal all around. Holly Spangler. Yeah, we've been following this, of course, as well and reporting on it. That. If I'm correct in, in what I've understood as well, like we are currently at a place where the U.S. Trade Representative has requested a technical consultation with Mexico, which means they will sit down, both sides bring in their experts, try to come to a resolution. If that doesn't happen, then the U.S. could file a formal dispute, basically through the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. And that would be, it would be conducted almost like a hearing, right, where they would bring in, you know, a panel of, of experts who would weigh in on does this violate the original terms of the agreement. And that would be, I think, pretty clear cut. <laughs> we never want to bank on a win, but um, if you're going back to what the original agreement was, it's pretty clear cut. Um, based on science. And Ron Moore, with you being on different uh, boards, such as the American Soybean Association, this may not be soybean today, but down the road, you never know. Uh, but what does a violation mean? It, if we were to win the dispute, is it just they have to take the corn? Well, they, they either have to take the corn or the, the U.S. can retaliate on products coming in from Mexico um, 
which is not a good thing for anybody. But this deal with Mexico is very similar to what soybeans dealt with in the European Union several years ago. They just don't want um, GMO products. Um, but they, they end up getting them. Some of them come from South America. Um, and they have it in there, and there was a ban on on uh, Roundup Ready soybeans, but 20 years ago I was in Ukraine and they had lots of fields of Roundup Ready soybeans that they were growing that were, no one, they kind of winked and went ahead and grew them, and so it's, it's nothing new, it just happens to be in corn right now. Okay, so it's not new. David Zimmerman? Well, I, for me, I mean, first and foremost, it's it's not grounded in any science uh, today, and I think that would be nice if, you know, and I know that request has probably been asked, <coughs> excuse me, but uh, until you can show good scientific reasoning for what you want to do, um, that's the first step, and I, I don't know that they're going to be able to do that. Um, secondly, I agree. I, I don't, I, I think under the USMCA, they don't have a leg to stand on here. Now, I, I don't know if, if Oberdor will win re-election. I think he's up this year. But if he loses, it, it most likely goes away, in my opinion, if he loses. Um, but, you know, it is problematic in that it's a slippery slope anytime you start putting these trade restrictions on. And, and I know they've, they've backpedaled some, and they said, well, this, this is only going to apply to feed products at this point. Well, the... You know, the logistics that, that move corn to Mexico are intermingled, so <clears throat> uh, effectively separating this out is going to be a very difficult thing. And I think even though they have backtracked and said, well, well, we'll take the human consumption and make that, I don't know that that's, I think that's still a somewhat of a restriction on, on feed corn going that way. Okay. And uh, we'll wait to see, like you said, 1st of April before we know anything. This could be an ongoing. That's why I asked Dan if it was a political representative, Swanson, uh, because of the environmental aspect that was was also a part of the discussion. And, and we don't know. You, you never know. Do we grow enough non-GMO corn in the United States that that would suffice what, what they need in, that, in the market of Mexico? I would think that'd be a better question to to bot, Rob, I, I'm not sure of what that breakout is between GMO. So, so my, my answer to that would be, irregardless of what our capacity is to grow it, they could always decide that, hey, we'll pay more to get a specific product of type. However, no, no commodity organization that's going to actually buy the corn uh, is in a position they want to go along with that. So that's the key. They could, they could always have a premium market if they wanted to develop it and get anything they want. Okay. But they're not wanting to do that. And from a political aspect, I, I ask the same question is, could we, could we outlive the current president of Mexico? And, and the answer I heard back was, you know what, we, we maybe can but he has developed a following within the Mexican government of some elite politicians who are now beginning to share some of those same perspectives. So have we started something that may get bigger than what we want? want that possibility exists, I guess. So. 
And it's some of the same rhetoric that we face in the United States, just in other forms when it comes to maybe climate change or whatever the buzzwords or topics are. It it's, sounds like that's developing in, in Mexico, too. You, you talk loud enough about something long enough, and it becomes reality, and that's kind of what they've done in Mexico with this thing. And I do want to point out there's some positive news. Uh, there, there are trade agreements with um, or discussions with Panama last week, um, also Japan, and there's real big discussion on the sustainable aviation fuel. Have you guys heard much about it? It is a huge topic right now. Yeah, so so the sustainable aviation fuel can be made, as I understand it, can be made from a lot of products, ethanol, soybean oil. Biomass. Um, yeah, and so it's still in its infancy and nobody knows what kind of demand we're going to have for that, but everybody is speculating that there'll be a big demand. I know there are a lot of crushed plants, soybean crushed plants that are being on the books to be built in the next two, three years. From the soybean perspective, what are we going to do with all the meal? If, we, if our demand is now going to be for oil, for renewable diesel, um, what are we going to do with all the, the meal? Because we use domestically all the meal we produce now. Are we going to go into the export market with some of the meal and compete with Argentina, which is there the number one exporter for soybean meal across the, the world? Um, so still a lot of unanswered questions, but the potential is there for um, a great deal of, of uh, renewable diesel fuel throughout the country and sustainable aviation fuel. David? Well, yeah, if, if you want to talk uh, sustainable aviation fuel, I mean, that's that's a huge component that the bioethanol industry is, is viewing. Um, not this year, but the development that's going on there, there is an SAF plan, I uh, believe in Georgia, um, that is up and running. It's a smaller one, but <clears throat> it's a 30 billion gallon market in the U.S. Um, you know, and the Biden administration put out what they called a grand challenge, uh, in that they wanted three billion gallons of of SAF by 2030. Well, as of right now, uh, between ADM and, and Green Plains um, and Marquis Energy, I think you have about 1.3 uh, billion gallons of ethanol committed to the SAF space, which translates to about 750,000 gallons of, of sustainable aviation fuel. Well, you're not even a third of the way there for the grand challenge yet. Um, but I, I'll tell you this, on the ethanol side, that's, that's where we are looking to um, potentially move any excess production that way, um, whether it's from electric vehicle penetration into the light duty pool. Um, we do expect some, some reductions in our usage in that area, about 8 to 10 percent by 2040. Well, the SAF space being having 30 billion gallon potential, Certainly soybean oil is going to take up a big chunk of that. Waste biomass is going to take up a big chunk, but you're going to need um, ethanol as a feedstock, a bio-intermediate feedstock to supply that industry. At least we know that there's a potential for another industry. Yeah. I was reading, Senator Anderson, that um, by 2030, the electric vehicle market will still only be uh, a certain smaller percentage of vehicles. So we still have a long way to go before that implementation occurs. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, we sat here last year and talked about electric tractors and how ridiculous that sounds, right? Um, so, yeah, I, there's uh, the electric vehicle tractor. Even now, 
uh, aviation is creeping in and um, we'll see where that goes. Okay. The interesting thing is um, with the carbon sequestration, we've got to really talk about this because we scratched the surface Friday and the average consumer really doesn't understand it. I don't know if we understand it um, to the full effect, but Troy Kazire did a pretty good job trying to explain this. Um, and it's basically if you have a, a, a large corporation who's producing 100 million uh, units they need to offset those units by buying carbon credits from others. Is that correct? That's close. Um, yeah, it's, help it's me definitely out. Definitely a complicated subject, but Troy I, called it a shell game. <laughs> I guess the easy way to put it, if you're talking about carbon sequestration and, and pipelines specifically, um, they are really just a product of what was contained in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and we had our annual shareholders meeting last week, and I, I made an attempt to explain what I called a transition going on in our industry today um, towards low carbon fuels. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act has many, many incentives uh, to push us that direction. Um, and the timing of it is, is really interesting in that our industry is about 20 years old at this point. So a lot of the larger processes and the larger um, thermal, thermal uh, producing, our boilers and whatnot, they're at a perfect spot to, to, they're at the end of their usable life. You upgrade them to something that's more efficient, has a lower carbon footprint. Um, but essentially our industry has pledged to be net zero by 2050. Uh, the way we get there, the biggest piece of that puzzle in reducing our carbon index score at a plant level is through carbon sequestration. Um, and there are incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act that push us that direction very aggressively. And how long do the incentives last? The 45Q is a 12-year credit. Um, there's there's what's called a 45Z, which is a clean fuel production credit that has a direct incentive on CI score versus incentive tax credit incentive level. Okay. Um, and that one that one right now is three years, but it may or may not be extended. Okay, that's what it looks like for a business. Rob, how about for the average farmer? Well, I I, w I would say. Uh, I don't think we can underscore enough the importance of what what this uh, carbon sequestration opportunity means to the ethanol industry, as well as those of us in the ag industry at a producer level as well from a commodity perspective. And I think that's the thing that's really underestimated, that it's a complex topic that it's somewhat difficult to fully understand. But I, I would share that if you're a farmer, and you have the thought in the back of your mind of an excavator going a mile across your pattern tiled field, you're cringing a little bit. However, we've got pipelines everywhere. We're all living with pipelines that have been there for years and years and years, and the majority of those without any kind of incident or trouble. So it's a very emotional issue. But I, I would tell you that I had the opportunity to set in with the uh, Navigator Pipeline Group, as which would be one that would come across from Minnesota through Iowa down to central Illinois, as well as the um, uh, Wolf Pipeline Group, which predominantly is the ADM uh, picking up Cedar Rapids, Clinton, Peoria, th those plants that they have as well as others. The other thing I would tell you about these, they will also pick up 
anhydrous ammonia, fertilizer plants, that in turn would give your corn you produce a lessened carbon intensity score as well. So th there, there's a lot of really positive ramifications to this thing. But, but I will tell you, after listening to those two groups and setting in with, you know, folks quizzing them with questions, I, I gained a whole lot bigger comfort zone of the possibilities that can be really positive, uh, albeit there's a lot of folks that really make them nervous. I, I know, Noreen, you probably got some folks over your way and some folks over in Knox County as well that the, the, the fact or thought of a pipeline coming through their field, it's kind of intimidating. But I think when you sit and consider the possible outcomes, it has some pretty, pretty great ramifications. Representative Hammond? And, and Rob is absolutely correct. Um, I, I don't know. I probably get on an average probably 15 emails um, a day um, on this issue, um, generally from folks that are opposed to it. I think their, their biggest concern is um, eminent domain. Um, it, these are their family farms that have been in the family for hundreds of years and um, they have a genuine concern on the ramifications of this um, on their on their family farm and uh, granted in the past there have been um, instances of um, pipelines that have failed um, I think that um, Technology in so many ways has advanced um, greatly um, since those um, explosions, uh, but it doesn't give comfort um, to the folks that um, will be impacted by it. So um, I think there is um, a, a genuine concern, and um, I, I, I don't think there's any question, though, and, and Mike or Neil or Dan may disagree with me, um, that certainly... Um, not only is the Biden administration pushing this, but um, the Pritzker administration um, is as well. So um, I think we will have some interesting outcomes uh, between now and, and when we adjourn session um, on this issue and, and some others related to it. Ron Moore? Yeah, so I have a, a, a farmer perspective here that as someone who's kind of looked into some of the carbon sequestration contracts that farmers use to maybe sequester a ton per acre and get paid 10 bucks an acre. I'd much rather see the pipelines go in and have the companies that are involved in these pipelines, the volume of carbon that they can sequester and, and put under the ground is so much more than I wouldn't have any idea how many farmers you how many acres you'd have to have a carbon sequestration contract with to accomplish the same goals. I think that you get more benefit from me as a farmer for having all the pipelines come in and sequester carbon from the ethanol plants, the fertilizer plants. I think we'll get a bigger benefit than anything I can get off of 600 acres of my ground. Um, my al Always my biggest argument against these carbon credits is that not picking on big river but a big river is going to pollute and they're going to buy credits for me they still get to pollute they're not there's not a net reduction in emissions no matter what I do 
Um, and so I'm in favor of putting the pipelines in. Yeah, you got to make sure that the landowners are treated fairly um, and there's no problems after the pipeline's in, but it, you get more benefit out of the pipelines than you do any of these carbon credits for individual farmers. Senator Halpin, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, there's a lot of potential for um, for our ethanol refineries and 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 potential for you know improving the environment. Um, but I'd have to echo what you know Representative Hammond says. You know, we do need to make sure that the the family farmer, the people on the ground, actually have a voice in that process and try to address some of the immediate concerns that they have. Um, we don't want to get in a position where you know we as an ag industry are are divided amongst ourselves. We really have to make sure education um, is at the forefront of what we're doing, and really make sure that we we come to. Um, some sort of agreement or on, on at least the process for how these things get done. I don't want to leave anyone behind or uh, leave a you know a small farmer holding the bag. Uh, you know we may be uh, installing a, a pipeline to really you know promote the general environment, but that doesn't do anything for me as a farmer if it's directly offending, uh, affecting the plots that I own. Neil, Senator Anderson, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean my view as a legislator is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, the the pipeline idea, great idea, but for me as a legislator, it comes down to the eminent domain issue. Um, if we are running a pipeline that's 300 miles long through the state of Illinois, and there is one farmer that says no, it is up to that company to fix that. Eminent domain should never be um, should never be implemented in this. We have to respect uh, owners' rights, and as a legislator, it is that simple for me. State Representative Dan Swanson. Thank you, Vanessa. In the House right now, we've got HB 3119 that passed through committee. I believe it was 1910 vote uh, split split vote. And it talks quite a bit about the eminent domain and the easements and things and setbacks of what the setback requirements are. And uh, you know, I think when I talk to people, the two biggest concerns are safety. How close is it going to come to my community? Is my fire district going to be trained on how to handle a leak? Are the residents of those communities or nearby areas that could be affected because, this, as I understand it, the carbon, if it's released, stays low to the ground because it's heavier in air. So um, there's that safety consideration of, of what happens in case of. And then the eminent domain, and, and with what Senator Anderson, I, I talked with one of the companies um, via Zoom from my office in Springfield. And I asked a question about eminent domain, and they their response was from the company was we do not have any intentions of using eminent domain. And I gave an example of well, you come up, there's an 80 acre sitting between your pipeline, a direct line. What are you going to do? You're not going to go around it. You're going to go through it. So in that case, you would use eminent domain, right? And the person said, yes, I guess we would. I said, well, I'll never say never. Um, because eminent domain has to take place. And I think, you know, right now, all the lines that we see on the maps are still just kind of pro um, projected where that pipeline is going to go until the Corps of Engineers specifically identifies where it's going to cross the Mississippi 
from Iowa to Illinois, we still don't know exactly where that pipeline is going. They're pretty close. They have an idea where it's going to go. But still, we don't know exactly where to be coming into Illinois. And David, as he folks have mentioned Iowa, there is certainly a group pushing against the pipeline in Iowa. I do not believe that's the case here in Illinois at the moment. Well, I, I think there have been a few groups that have popped up in opposition. And they, I, I think they're probably a little bit of a louder minority. Um, I, I agree with what everyone has said on, on, on private property rights. Um, I think it's I think it's very important, and I think uh, I think the farmer should be compensated fairly uh, for for that pipeline crossing his ground. Um, where my frustration with the entire thing is that you know our government representatives hand down this edict to us that uh, you know we're going to have. Uh, you know, fuel economy standards and grams of CO2 per mile, you know, less than 100, and we're going to have CAFE standards at 60 to 65. Um, we give you all these incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act to do just what we're trying to do, but then, you know, then, then we don't have the tools to do it. Um, the end result of that is 100% electric vehicles. And, um, you know, there's a bill, there's a clean fuel standard in the, in the Illinois General Assembly, Assembly today. Um, I'm not sure the status of it. I think it's still sitting there. But what it would do is essentially it, it, it says we need a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas in our transportation fuel in Illinois by 2038. Um, it produces carbon credits. And, um, you know, if liquid fuels are not allowed to participate in that bill, that's, it's a Trojan horse for electric vehicles at that point in time. Um, so if you, if you want to regulate or legislate us out of, out of existence in lieu of electric vehicles, um, just take away the tools that we need to meet those goals, and that's what you'll get. Senator Anderson? Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. Um, that, that, uh, that is exactly what's happening. And, I'll kind of back up here. So um, in 2016, I was part of negotiating the CJA bill, um, which um, was um, very, very convoluted. Energy policy, as David knows, is very convoluted in the state of Illinois. But just looking at the language that was used, the, the narrative, back then it was we talked about um, the the catchword was clean energy, right? We want clean energy. And now fast forward to uh, the bill that was just passed here last year. Uh, they stopped using clean energy and they started using renewable. Um, and the reason for that is is that in the first one, um, the wind and solar folks knew that they had to include nuclear uh, to get what they wanted done, and now they want to they they want to get rid of nuclear, and so the the word they use is renewable to kick um, nuclear out. So it's the little things like that that goes to exactly what David said. Um, they are constantly trying to push um, the the green agenda and and get you know, liquid fuel completely out. As I can follow up on that a little bit, maybe. And I think what these two guys just hit on are, are really a couple of the key points. Um, actually, much, much bigger than the carbon offsets or 
buying those carbon credits when you want to pollute. What they just talked about is probably the, the really the key with this sequestration thing in that we've talked about electric vehicles many times in the past and the pass they get as a you know no no emissions at the tailpipe kind of deal but if we can reduce that carbon intensity score by sequestering that carbon we get that that score that is equal to or maybe or actually better than in reality than the electric folks and it allows folks like Big River to sell into markets that they may not have been able to or may not be able to in the future be because of the, the fuel standards like California, Oregon, some of those West Coast states that are now, they're going to buy from South America because sugarcane also gets a pass as a less carbon intensive source for, the, for their fuel. So that's probably the bigger part of the equation here really than the carbon offset purchases is that uh, carbon intensity, the fuel, and how we can uh, place it into markets better than what we have in the past. Sure. And Holly, it, as Rob just said about California, I believe they actually have a mandate um, for no liquid, uh, you know, or combustible engines, rather, in the future coming up. If, if I read my Illinois Corn News um, emails correctly, that's interesting. That's legislation that sets precedents. Yeah, I think we see that often, right? It's less legislation that sets precedents coming out of California. And those are always concerning. You know, I sit here and, and uh, maybe momentarily take off my prairie farmer hat and put my farmer hat on. We farm in northwestern Fulton County, right where the proposed pipeline would come through truly just down the road and across one of our farms. And so we're, you know, we're hearing a lot of these discussions, you know, when you folks talk about, you know, hearing from people who are concerned about eminent domain, that's what people are really concerned about. And that's that idea of like, you know, you don't want to be the last guy trying to negotiate on the courthouse steps when there's, you know, eminent domain's been enacted. Like it's, it's just, it's too late at that point. But these fo there, there are folks who are just really opposed to it, and 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 longtime farmers, you know, who understand the ethanol, um, the importance of, of of the pipeline for ethanol, but just really don't want it anyway. And and that's a hard, kind of, it's a hard case to make um, with with those folks. And it's also just, you know, when we talk about you know hearing about you know both sides of this, you know, the, the coalitions and the groups that are opposed. There's a lot of misinformation being shared too about what's true and what's not and and a lot of accusations and things that just aren't quite accurate so those things are tough for groups like Illinois Corn and whoever to to deal with sure and um, Ron so question it so if um, the pipelines go through you know we have wind and solar now no longer being I believe and the legislators can correct me if I'm wrong that's been taken out of the hands of local county governments and moved into the hands of the state so who actually would regulate the pipeline well that's a question I wouldn't have an answer to but you did mention the solar and the and the uh, uh, the wind farms having the state regulating them now I'm at a kind of go back into the livestock industry because I raise cattle and and um, I had a conversation with Senator Anderson in his office last week about there's a push to give the Livestock Management Facilities Act back 
to control that back to the county level or municipal level, which to me, right now, it's at the state level. Um, you do have to have public hearings locally, but the, the, the decision or the site a new livestock facility is in the Department of Agriculture's hands. If if that goes backwards and goes to the state control, that's contradictory to what the legislature just passed, giving them con oversight on the and siting of the wind farms and solar farms. So there's some inconsistencies within that. Um, and so I, I'm just bringing that out as something that to me, it doesn't make any sense to go backwards on a Livestock Management Facilities Act and giving control back to the counties and municipal levels. Senator Anderson, what was your response or what can you do to help? Yeah, so there's uh, inconsistency. It seems like that's what we do in Springfield, right? Um, so so the, the wind and solar aspect, the way the bill was written, it, it basically took it out of the county's hands and gave it to the state. But it also allows for um, locals in um, incorporated areas to be able to say no. So what you're going to see here is they're going to try to push these, these wind and solar farms in unincorporated areas. And the answer to that is, because people aren't stupid, is they're just going to start incorporating. And it's very, very easy. Um, doesn't cost a lot of money. And when something comes up and the people say no and the state says yes, all they're going to do is they're, they're going to incorporate. Okay. Chris, you've got farmers uh, it, with your bank, of course. The reason that we bring any of the wind and solar up in, in a little bit of a case is um, how much farmland does it take out of production? Yeah, I think there's a... Uh, um, that's a great question on and the on the uh, solar is taking quite a bit out of production. As you can see, as solar farms come into play uh, more and more, and same same thing with wind farms with the with the setbacks in the roads they have to put them in. Uh, I've heard I've heard presentation from I heard the presentation from Navigator, and then uh, a month later, just last week, I heard the presentation from the I don't remember the name of the organization that's out following Navigator around, uh, doing the, the point, counterpoint, and but they were very, I thought they were very ne negative, they were kind of a, using scare tactics to scare people away from the pipeline. But, um, you know, it's gonna, the, the, uh, the things that they said about taking land out of production were just kind of wrong, you know? I mean, every farmer, has put tile in their field, and when you put tile in your field, yeah, you, I mean, anytime you disturb the soil, you know, you're going to have maybe a year or two of of issues with whether it's compaction or or whether it's uh, drainage or different things like that. But but the long story short is that I don't think there's going to be hardly any land taken out of production, unless I'm wrong, with a with a, pi a buried pipeline. Um, so I don't think that has an impact. <laughs> but that is being brought up by the opposition that's going to take this land out of production and it's going to hurt production. But I would say that that, that's, that the amount of corn bushels uh, that we that, that get hurt or the amount of bushels we don't produce because of that would just be a, a very drop in the bucket uh, compared to what we produce nationwide. So, Senator Halpin, your thoughts on this topic? 
Well, I, I would tend to agree when it comes to the pipeline. I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of loss of production. I mean, only maybe on a temporary basis, and even then, um, not not large. I think on the solar and wind, you do see a larger uh, loss of production. But I mean, if we truly believe about you know personal property rights, if those landowners want uh, a solar field rather than to continue farming it, my personal opinion is that's you know that's their decision. Um, same thing for, for wind. I know it may be inconvenient. It's sometimes inconvenient for the for the industry, but if at at the core we're talking about personal property rights, that's that landowner's um, uh, decision. Um, and you know, to some extent, we have to, to respect that. And uh, if if someone else believes that that land should be uh, continue to be farmed, then maybe offer a better price and you know take over that property and continue to farm it. And that's not always a good answer, but that's might might be what we have to do. Sure. Um, and Ron, you made a point earlier about the pollution by a company, just using XYZ as a company, able to buy credits from a, an agriculture industry or person or company to offset the pollution. That's, that's where I'm sort of like, huh, but we didn't actually help the environment, no, right? That, yeah, and that's where last week Troy's comment about being a shell game is, is you give me money on one hand, but I still get to do bad things on my other hand. So and that's been going on since the beginning of time, well, right? Yeah, and so, you know... I, I'm more encouraged, like I said before, about the pipelines because you can, the volume of carbon you can sequester with a pipeline is enormous compared to what you can do on my farm. And you know, if if I do everything right, I get 600 tons of credit at $6,000. And if I plowed up next year because of weather conditions, mm -hmm. I have to some contracts say so I got to pay that money back. So I'm not really gaining anything personally. Um, and I, again, I think the pipelines are a better way to sequester carbon than having farmers with, you know, 100,000 contracts, 100,000 farmers with contracts out there. And Brendan Marshall's with us from Growmark FS. And well, it, Friday, as we talked to Brendan, you may not be able to answer all the questions today, but, but you can talk with farmers with a representative from a company that you guys are at least working with to talk. Yeah, I mean, Growmark has uh, teamed up with Indigo. Um, and That's I've, globally, right? Or I mean, North America, right? Yes, yes. And so, and, and, and they're offering, you know, um, contracts for farmers who are interested in it, you know, in selling carbon. And I've sat in two meetings with representative, and I have a local representative that, that will meet with me and actually go out with the customer. So, and they're very good at explaining it. And, and, and yeah, I can understand the shell game piece, but if a grower is interested in it and they want to try to make a little something per acre off of uh, using, a, a, you know, selling their carbon, Indigo is very good at explaining it. And from what I have seen so far with Indigo, and, and I haven't gotten completely into it uh, immensely, but the way it looks is they have the easiest contract if you need to break it. They're willing to work with you. And if you have to plow up, as Ron was saying, because I had a big washed out area. In my, I mean, they, they understand the reality of it. And so right now, it, it's, you know, it's a pretty good option if you're interested in it. Jake, you're Armstrong. You are a young whippersnapper, meaning in this agriculture world. What do you see? 
Um, opportunities is the word I'd like to use, whether it's with carbon pipelines or carbon contracts or um, any of the options that uh, will come in the future. Um, environmentalism is here to stay. I think that is something my generation um, really embraces and wants to run with, wh whatever we're doing, whether we're buying airplane tickets or planting a crop. Um, that is something that uh, my generation generally tends to think about. And I think agriculture can be a good solution and has a potential to make some money off of this. So I just see opportunity in the future, whether it's um, with contracts or pipelines. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't answer that. But uh, I think it is a good opportunity for this industry. Okay. Anything else, David, you want to add on it? Well, yeah, I guess uh, just on the topic of voluntary carbon credits, mm -hmm. I understand where there's a little confusion on them. But and it could be it could be deemed a shell game, I guess. Uh, you know, but but the reason that that voluntary carbon credit has value is because somebody else has verifiably sequestered that carbon. Um, so yes, uh, if I'm if I'm a steel mill in Pittsburgh, I can certainly buy those credits and continue to do or pollute as I have been. Um, but ultimately, when they buy those credits, they're, they're using it as a proxy for the carbon they did not sequester. Now, as far as the farm level and where this is going there, I, I think ultimately, yeah, there, there are Indigo, Gradable, there are several companies out there right now trying to, to produce verifiable so, soil organic carbon credits. Um, but if you look at to me, where that where it makes the most sense is ultimately to to filter back to the price of corn. Um, to get to net zero as an industry, we know we are going to have to address our feedstock, which right now has a CI score of 10 to 15 points. We need to get that to zero, and the only way to do that is to incentivize the farmer to make those those changes and. Um, that way, a producer, if he wants to continue with his conventional tillage, he can. Um, but if you want to grow cover crops and go no-till and, and manage nitrogen, there's a potential incentive to do that. Um, and I know those details are still being worked out. Representative Swanson, um, you have certainly had decades of experience with your farm. How does all that sound to you? Uh, you guys have been doing a lot of things already with no-till and you name it, um, really good things for the land. Well, I, I think that's the farmers today are um, all practicing tillage practices that best suits their operations. Of course, when we have soybeans in the hills, we don't till that soil. But if we have corn and we need to till the soil, I mean, we deep rip it or use a tool that uh, is conservation approved. But you know, it's a new, new way of doing business now for agriculture. And, uh, you know, some of the um, the younger people, as Jake said, embrace it as an opportunity. Um, there's others of us who look at it as being another roadblock by government. So, I mean, there's a couple different ways of looking at how we do business today. But, uh, you know, on our farm, we have, uh, the landlords have a couple wind turbines. It was their decision to put those wind turbines there. There's a new company moving into our area that's going to offer um, several thousands of dollars to put wind turbines. I've heard anywhere from 20 to 30,000 a turbine. Um, and that's going to take more land out of production. But if you work with the company, it can help us put a road network in the middle of a field to get equipment out to the middle of the field, too. So um, a lot of changes in agriculture today. <clears throat> and it's uh, somewhat hard to embrace some of the changes. But uh, we know that uh, 
they're going to be coming and uh, we're not going to be given too many options on some of these that, that we're going to have to implement and as Senator Anderson said until I see that first 300 horsepower tractor that can pull and work in the field 12 hours a day or 14 hours a day whatever the case is going to be it's going to be difficult to uh, to go to zero carbon and no no fossil fuels and since uh, Senator Anderson is a firefighter I can let you know that you've probably already well aware of this with the EVs um, our local fire department has been doing training as they are learning about the difficulty in the fire hazard of the EVs you can't the fire doesn't go out like a traditional fire because of the batteries and you literally got to pour dirt on them if 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 you know instead of water to try to get these things to go out what are some of the safety mechanisms that are starting to be talked about yeah so we have uh, pretty regular training uh, in the city of Moline um, where I work we were one of the first cities where Metrolink bus service actually went to EV um, buses and so we had a lot of training uh, on the new EV buses and yeah the electric cars not only the batteries uh, with a fire but when uh, they are in a car wreck um, simply extricating somebody from a vehicle knowing where you can and can't cut because of high voltage wires um, is is pretty important training um, but yeah to your point Vanessa um, it's not something that you can just put water on um, uh, we have to use a lot of different uh, different ways to put that out other than water that's what we're learning so at the end of the day Rob I you know is it really a net zero carbon if there's complications with you know the batteries of electric vehicles and what happens to is there a score for disposing of the batteries suckers are huge i sat in a tesla not too long ago and uh, that thing's like five thousand pounds do you know what it costs to replace one of those in nine years let's hope we can come to a reality <laughs> in the whole electric piece but if i could back up to the carbon um, situation i think we've talked about it before that this whole carbon credits for farmers getting paid for it is kind of the wild west um, and, and it's one of those evolution type things and I, and I would say Illinois corn has been in partnership and in talks recently with folks like PepsiCo and Walmart and Target and Nature Conservancy and others that they've kind of identified this this thing's too complicated ten and 10 and plus year contracts don't work. How, how do we make this thing simpler, more user friendly, uh, tend to make more sense? So you've got that element of thought kind of buzzing in the, in the industry, which is a good thing. So if we're gonna get to a solution, that's the kind of thinking we need to probably employ. Okay, so. and Senator Anderson, you had one more thing to follow up with? Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, I think it's important for people to remember too when it comes to the EV thing, you know, um, in in China, they're not using electric vehicles to run these strip mines to get the lithium out of the earth. And they're not charging these batteries with another battery. They're charging them with uh, either natural gas or coal uh, for the most part. So, um, and, and the cars are made up of plastics, with the, which is petroleum. So uh, don't fall into the, the you know, they're, um, you know, free of emissions. Okay. It is 10.59, so we'll take our first, um, our one and only break, come back with a lot more on our plate for the second half. It is 11 a.m. on WRAM Mammoth, Illinois. We'll be back with the 2023 FS Spring Ag Roundtable. Protecting your field is our scout's honor. At FS, we're focused on crop performance. 
Our certified crop specialists will identify environmental conditions, crop growth stage, and plant development to make agronomic recommendations for each of your fields. It's our goal to maximize every acre you farm and protect the local environment. So visit fssystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. Have you heard of the Employee Retention Credit? ERC is a payroll tax refund program for any business who kept employees on their payroll during the pandemic. Hi, I'm Lance Otting. Midwest Bank has formed a partnership with Innovation Refunds to get your business a refund of up to $26,000 per employee. You can use this refund to pay off debt, grow your business, cover operating expenses, or hire and retain employees. How much could be waiting for your business? Estimate your potential refund in minutes, no commitment required. Visit mbwi.com to start your claim today. Member FDIC equal Hi, this is David Zimmerman, CEO of Big River Resources. We expect many great things on the horizon, looking at efficiencies within our plants, lowering our carbon score, moving forward on the carbon pipeline project. The future of ethanol is something we're very excited about at Big River Resources. Our farmers deliver the corn to us. We produce the low carbon ethanol and we see a very bright future for anything energy related. Big River Resources is located in Monmouth, Illinois, Galva, Illinois, West Burlington, Iowa, Dyersville, Iowa, and Boyceville, Wisconsin. Max Armstrong here. The demand for nitrogen has never been higher. Fortunately, Pivot Bio has transformed the way fertilizer is produced and used by farmers. Unlike synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, the cost of Pivot Bio Proven 40 is every bit as consistent as its performance. And since it's applied in furrow at planting, it's weatherproof. To learn more, contact Elliott Brothers Seed in Monmouth, Illinois. Call 309-368-0979. Monmouth College, your home away from home. Meet Michael Blazing with the Monmouth College Fighting Scott Society. The college has over 400 student athletes. The Fighting Scott Society is a fund that supplements that athletic department's budget and it's a way to bridge that gap between what the department needs and what it takes to recruit and retain our scholar athletes. And I mentioned scholar athletes because they really are. 16 of our 22 programs finished the fall semester with a 3-point GPA or higher, led by our women's track team with a 3.61 GPA. And depending on the sport, a team GPA of 3.2 or 3.3 qualifies them for All-American honors. It really just goes to the work that the coaches do with and who they're recruiting, but also just the work that our scholar athletes put in. They're working hard, not only on the courts or in the field or in the pool, but in the classroom as well. Monmouth College, your home away from home. Visit monmouthcollege.edu. ABC News. I'm Sherry Preston. Making plans for funerals amid the devastation. People who survived the Farmers Mutual Hail is headquartered in America's heartland, and as a mutual, they are owned by their policyholders, American Farmers, not a foreign parent company. Since 1893, they have served our nation's farmers with a combination of financial strength, personal service, and Midwestern values. FMH is truly America's crop insurance company. Call your local FMH agent, Kevin Miller or Nikki Jones at 734-7707 to develop your custom crop insurance strategy today. You have a big presentation at work, but it's an icky cough kind of morning. And you don't have time to wait to get in to see the doctor. Now you don't have to. OSF Medical Group Primary Care in Monmouth now offers same-day appointments. Because we know there are times when things like icky coughs can't wait. When it can't wait, call OSF Medical Group Primary Care in Monmouth at 309-734-1414. 
That's 309-734-1414. As the spring season is here, so is the push to get the crops in the ground. Farmers, remember to slow down and exercise caution. Get plenty of rest and take frequent breaks. Accidents are more likely to occur once fatigue sets in. Make sure to tell your family and coworkers where you will be working and always keep your cell phone handy and fully charged at all times in case of emergencies. Stay safe during this spring planting season. This farm safety tip is brought to you courtesy of the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau. No one works harder to help you achieve your goals. We know how challenging and rewarding farming and this way of life can be. You won't find financial experts with more ag knowledge and deeper rural roots. We grew up here, and many of us are farm kids through and through. So whether you have one acre or a thousand. Whether you're building a house or a legacy. Your friends, family, and neighbors at Compere Financial have your back. And, and we're, we're ready, ready to, to champion, champion rural together. together. Learn more at Compere.com. Compere Financial. Equal credit opportunity lender. At WRAM, you get a little bit of everything, like local news and sports, broadcasts of local ball games, and live community interviews. And your home in the country on AM 1330 WRAM. We don't stop with just radio either. Visit our website at radiomonmouth.com and listen live or find local news stories, community hour and coaches corner podcasts, and download our free apps on AM 1330 WRAM. Okay, need a little more. Too much, little less, just about got it. And that's what it's like figuring out nitrogen. But with My Field Nurture from FS, your crop specialist can help with expertise and a vast array of tools to manage nitrogen all season. You'll get a plan for the right source at the right rates at the right times and in the right place to maximize ROI. So talk with your FS crop specialist to learn more about My Field Nurture. Right there, perfect. Here's your weatherology forecast. A blend of clouds and sun this afternoon with a high of 48. North winds, 8 to 15 miles per hour. Lows level off around 31 tonight. Overcast skies, mainly sunny skies and calm tomorrow. Daytime highs approaching 50. Highs level off around 46. Wednesday, under overcast skies. 62 Thursday, chance for scattered rain showers. I'm weatherology meteorologist Paul Frombley from the WRAM Weather Center. Right now, 42. Big green tractor, we can go slow, or make it go faster, down through the woods and out to the pasture. Long as I'm with you, it really don't matter. Climb up in my lap and drive if you want to. Girl, you know you got me to hold on to. We can go to town, but baby, if you'd rather, I'll take you for a ride on my big green tractor. Welcome back to the 2023 FS Ag Roundtable. We are live at the Patent Block building on the third floor. And uh, the Patent Block building, Chris Gavin, remind us, this is on the uh, National Historic Register of Places, correct? It is. Uh, built in 1891, and it is on the National Register. You can Google it, uh, the Patent Building, and you can you can find out about that. So Nice. Our partners today include our corporate partner, Growmark FS, Brendan Marshall here in representation today, Midwest Bank, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Monmouth College, A. Eugene Miller Agency, OSF, Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, and Compere Financial. Let's jump right back in. Rob Elliott with Illinois Corn had a comment about the Japan market. Sure. Uh, just to follow up, you, you'd mentioned some of those uh, ex-U.S. markets uh, earlier. Um, 
Vanessa, I, I'm just going to report that uh, some pretty good news out of Japan. David uh, may be uh, aware of this, but there's been two delegation trips where some Illinois folks went to Japan uh, with kind of the science base of value in ethanol as kind of the focus of the trip and uh, had some really pretty good luck. There's been, since that point in time, uh, a delegation from Japan, uh, government officials that have come back to the U.S., um, tour toured the country wanting to learn more. And it appears like we'll get to a point where we'll get them to up the ante with their ethanol use. So, and I, I would also say significant cooperation from uh, Senator Duckworth in doing that. She went along on the second trip and as well would need to recognize Rahm Emanuel, who is the uh, ambassador in Japan, who he was very supportive in, in helping make all that happen too. So, and I believe there, the name there of are the some good things going on around the world. Yes, and I believe the name of the company, and I'm going to say it wrong, Idumitsu came to meet with you as well as other uh, uh, Renewable Fuels Association members, such as Big River, to actually see the process. Yeah, we did. We hosted, uh, I think, six or seven of, of that group uh, probably about two weeks ago. Um, and, and Japan is certainly starting to have some differing opinions on how they want to move forward as far as their uh, their fuel situation. These these folks were, were also interested in, in ethanol as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel um, that they, they wanted to build a facility in, in Japan um, to produce their own. So they're looking for feedstock for that. Yes. That's uh, what I was referring to when we first were, were getting going was seeing some of that information. And now Panama. Uh, and Ron Moore's been to Panama. So this is not new that we're reaching out to a market like this. No, and you know it's really the the Caribbean countries and are really close, and so we're trying to do more with them. It just makes sense when we don't have to travel five thousand miles to move our products when we can travel five hundred miles and and get and and increase the standard of living for those folks that live in that country. Okay, and uh, finishing with ethanol fuel, uh, or future for ethanol as well as U.S. corn and soybean crop versus Brazil. So you mentioned sugarcane, Rob. We also know that the Brazil Brazilian corn has the opportunity to have, they have three different planting cycles versus the one planting cycle in the United States. They do. They have a safrina crop. Um, really, the, the the most the, the most interesting or, or, or the thing that we're taking notice of with Brazil is they're expanding their corn ethanol industry right now. Um, they're up to 1.5 billion gallons of corn ethanol production. Um, I'm fairly certain there's another 300 million gallons of corn ethanol production that will come online in Brazil within the next two years. And why is that important to us? Is because Brazil also produces seven to eight billion gallons of sugarcane ethanol. Um, what we see is them displacing their domestic use with the corn ethanol and exporting the sugarcane ethanol with a lower carbon intensity to places that have clean fuel standards, California, um, the EU, uh, Canada. Um, so we're seeing Brazil really branch out as a net exporter of ethanol um, as they grow that corn industry. It's uh, it's it's kind of being viewed as, as, as a bit of a threat um, for us and a lot of the farmers in the room have dealt with that on corn and soybeans over the years. Um, 
and you know the, the the trading relationship's problematic. They have a tariff on our ethanol to go down there. Um, they don't allow our ethanol to participate in their Renovol Bio, their version of the RFS. Um, while we do extend all of those things to them. Um, so it's it's discouraging from our, our standpoint. Is that partially because China's doing so much with their restoration and, and revamping and, and they're literally helping them with their infrastructure? Well, their infrastructure is another, and, and really that's their main hurdle right now is their infrastructure to the coast. Um, and if that if that gets resurrected or, or rectified, then, um, then it just amplifies the problem. And Ron, you've been, speaking of South America, you've been there too. Yeah, a couple different times. And, and yeah, their infrastructure is well behind us. The first time I was in Brazil, we were out producing them here in the United States. And our the group I was with kind of calculated, oh, it won't be in our lifetime before, you know, they outproduce us in soybean production. It was five years. And they were producing more soybeans than we did. And... You know, the farmers in Brazil that I met are just like the farmers here in the United States. They're trying to make a living for their family. They're trying to, to grow their businesses. When I was in Lucas de Rio Verde in 1998, there were 2,500 people living in that town. Twelve years later, it was in the same town, there were 25,000 people living in that town. They were using their... Um, increase in agriculture production as an economic development tool for their central air, central of the country. And so I don't know that they're as much as our competition is there. They are our colleagues mm -hmm. in producing food for this world. Um, you know, if you, if you didn't have South America production, what would the price of soybeans and corn be here in the United States? And we would out the input cost for our livestock industry would be cost prohibitive. And so we, we, always, we always have to have a balance with the competition that we get in, from Brazil, South America. Um, and so I, to me, I think it's good that we have our friends in South America that are raising corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, um, because we all need to, a rising tides raises all boats, and so when you have that kind of competition where we're we're partners in global food production, I think it's a good thing. Holly Spangler, your thoughts so far? You know, I think we, we've looked at Brazil for a long time. You know, and, and the production there, and and uh, and and I, I I really appreciate Ron's comment that uh, farmers there are just like farmers here. That's true everywhere, isn't it, in the world? And and just want to produce more with what we have. And um, but it's it's exactly you know as as David said as well. Like it's it's a matter of getting it out of the country and getting it exported. And um, those are the advantages that we currently have. Okay. And does anybody have an update with Congress where we're at with the Next Generation Fuels Act legislation? Sure. I, it was. Uh, introduced in the Senate about a week ago. I don't know if I have my timeline exactly. Um, by uh, Senator uh, Klobuchar and uh, Grassley. It's got support from Ernst and uh, I don't know, one, one other I, I can't speak to. The thought is that it will be reintroduced in the House, I believe, possibly yet this week. So, um, 
an effort that we've talked about here several times over the last year and a half. Uh, looks like it will be talked about earlier than this in this Congress than maybe what we even thought about thought would happen. Okay, so, so she's that, still that's, that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah, it's still going, even though uh, Representative Bustos retired. Uh, looks right. like you said these other four have picked it up, so that's good. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of uh, Congress, uh, let's let's turn to the Illinois General Assembly with some updates uh, legislatively. Which of the four of you would like to go first? The sleepy Senate. <laughs> Since you're new uh, to the program, uh, go ahead, Senator Halpin. Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, on the Senate side, we're just approaching our um, uh, Senate bill third reading deadline, which is this Friday. The House had their deadline uh, this past Friday, and so I think we know the bulk of the, the bills that are coming out of the House at the moment. Uh, we haven't really started to look at those uh, closely as we're still working our way through uh, our calendar. Um, it'll probably be busy this week, uh, and then we're scheduled to have uh, an in-district work period uh, over the basically the Easter area, uh, Easter break. So, and once we get back from that, we'll start looking at the um, the House bills. We haven't done anything uh, particularly big at this point in the Senate. I think we're waiting to see what the what the House passes, and then uh, in early April, the the budget discussions will begin in earnest, and so we'll be able to. Um, you know, provide kind of the groundwork of what the what the playing field is going to look like for the for the budget for the fiscal year. Okay, Representative Noreen Hammond. Um, thank you, uh, Vanessa. So, um, as uh, Senator Halpin mentioned, we're we're all kind of on these deadlines now, if you will. Um, essentially, the House deadline for um, House bills to be. Um, out of of the house and and passed on third reading um, was Friday. Um, I'll let Dan go into some of the shenanigans that went on there, but um, we will see certainly tomorrow whether or not some of the bills that did not get called will be given an extension. Uh, the speaker has said he was not doing any extensions. There were very limited bills. Um, there are some in appropriations, which is to be expected. Um, but he was um, adamant that there would not be any extensions for um, standalone bills. So um, we will see how that goes. Um, we are um, very very fortunate as a House Republican caucus. We have a um, new leader in the House in Tony McCombie. Uh, she is uh, from the Savannah area, uh, formerly the mayor of Savannah, and uh, she is doing an incredible, incredible job um, as leader of, of our House caucus. So um, looking forward to that. We've had some interesting bills. Um, I was just mentioning to Dan, um, the other day, um, I, I believe it was Thursday, might have been Friday, they all go together, um, Representative Evans, Marcus Evans, uh, did pass a bill for um, offshore wind um, in the House. It, um, it got 80-some votes. It did have um, some pushback from some folks, but essentially it would allow for um, offshore wind on Lake Michigan. Um, it, interestingly, um, in the Senate, Senator Rose introduced a bill uh, a month or so ago. Um, if it's such a great idea, uh, how about you go first? And that that bill essentially put um, 
a, a solar farm uh, in Millennium Park. It put a wind tower. It, it allowed for a wind tower um, on top of the beam, and um, there would be um, wind towers in all of the park districts in Chicago and um, all of the forest preserves. So, um, needless to say, it's in assignments and and isn't going anywhere. But uh, I, when I when I was listening to Marcus uh, pass his bill, I thought, well, you know, there's little pieces of this that perhaps are beginning to seep out. So um, I, I think the realization is there that um, if if this is the direction the state of Illinois is going, um, then it has to um, happen um, in all neighborhoods of the state, not just certainly in, in downstate and our rural areas. Um, I have been very fortunate. I've passed a, a couple of, um, bill, I've passed a few bills, but uh, two that I had a particular interest. One I worked on um, for the last two years is a um, proton bean uh, therapy for cancer patients. And um, while it is FDA approved, our insurance companies were calling it experimental and not including it as an in-network expense. So um, I was able to pass that through the House and um, now it is um, over in the Senate. And it's, um, it, it's very important with proton beam therapy, beam therapy, um, it directs the radiation uh, directly to the tumor and there's very little residual coming out the back end. And so particularly for pediatric cancers, um, it's uh, been very successful. And um, another one for a sliding scale insulin with um, some of our, our folks that are in assisted living facilities, um, they have to um, either have a private nurse or a family member come in to um, administer their insulin if they can't do it themselves. So um, this bill allows for uh, the resident uh, nurse um, in that facility uh, to um, administer the insulin and, and that way they don't have to um, be moved out to a different facility. Okay. Representative Swanson. Thank you, Vanessa. Yes, as Noreen said, it's been interesting. Thursday in session, I think we wrapped up around 10 o'clock. We passed 102 bills from about 1 o'clock to, to 10 o'clock. Friday, we passed 142 bills. And one would say, what do we need to change? And we say that all the time. We don't have enough bills and laws out there already. Um, but the interesting is we ended Friday, um, as I talked briefly about, uh, Around 9.30 or so, we called for verification, and verification is the old FFA term, is division or division of the House, where you demand a roll call of who voted. And in Springfield, we vote a button, it's either red, green, or yellow for the vote. And we called for verification because we didn't think that there were enough members there voting their own switches. And of course that's the requirement, you vote your switch. You cast your own vote. But we called for verification after about 10 minutes. Um, they were able to come up with enough members from the Stratton building coming out of the woodwork everywhere that they could pass that bill. Um, later on, um, around quarter after 10, um, again a bill came up, very contentious bill, and we only had an opportunity to speak um, one opponent on that bill and happened to be a, a Democrat member who was a, talked in opposition to the bill. 
and uh, we didn't have an opportunity to talk and it was a very contentious bill as I said. Um, we looked around and uh, did the vote and they had 64 yes votes and we had 30 some no votes. So we called for verification and verification means you read off the roll call then of those who vote pres or yes. And as we started to read off the names, there were members who were not present to cast their own vote. And when we reached 59, after reading off five names, they did not have enough people. So um, the session ended around 11 o'clock that night because members had left and for hour, we don't know how long, but at least an hour, they were voting for people who weren't even there. What was the bill for again? Um, it was a pharmacy bill. Yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a generic uh, drug bill that um, on, on first blush looks like um, it would be a good bill for consumers that it would um, lower some of the costs for the generic drugs but um, essentially you have to be very careful um, when you're doing that because you may actually um, increase the cost of those bills because um, the way it is now when um, a drug company has um, a a, a drug on the market and the generics begin to come on, um, at that point there is generally um, a settlement agreement that moves forward that allows for all of those drugs to be on the market at the same time and so it can be cost effective. But the fear with this bill, the way it was written, was um, that it would essentially uh, cause um, a, a significant increase in costs um, when the drug companies would say, "Okay, you just go ahead." Um, so now you're take you're not now you're pulling some drugs off the market. So um, it, there was m more to it than first blush. Right. It was so we went to caucus, and while we were in caucus, they decided to adjourn because they knew they did not have enough members. Um, as far as legislation, I've been able to pass uh, seven bills in the House, three bills are fire-related, fire protection district, and state fire marshal, um, a bill f on death certificates for veterans to help alleviate some of the problems that um, spouses or remaining family members have when a death certificate is not properly identified as a, um, as a, for example, an Agent Orange or cancer or something related to the Agent Orange is not specifically identified on a death certificate. Um, the family then must track down the doctor or the whoever signed that death certificate to ask them to change it, um, which amounts to about $1,500 for a widow, um, insurance and other things that she becomes available because it was identified and then I passed some legislation um, for individuals with Lyme disease three different pieces of legislation for those and then I have a house joint resolution that I hope uh, we can get carried over the Senate I have no doubt uh, recognize Deputy Nick Weist who was killed April last year so and we'll rename Route 150 from Galesburg to Alpha, the Nick Weiss Memorial Highway. Okay. Senator Anderson? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Senator Halpin kind of outlined the um, administrative side of what's going on in the Senate very well. Um, I, I've been, uh, it's been a real honor to work with Representative Swanson, Leader Hammond on a lot of their pieces of legislation that they do in the House, me being able to carry it in the Senate. Uh, Senator Halpin and I worked on a bill um, that he carried through the Senate this year that I was a chief co-sponsor of helping um, 
especially geared towards volunteer fire departments uh, with uh, certifications and training um, to kind of relieve the uh, burden off of uh, off of them getting their certifications. So, um, and I'm uh, I'm a proud to be a co-sponsor of uh, Senator Chapin Rose's You First Bill. Um, yeah, as uh, Leader Hammond pointed out, we're just uh, suggesting that uh, the city of Chicago put wind and solar on every rooftop and in their parks there before they uh, want to take our farmland that we feed them with. That is very interesting. You guys can have your own reality TV show in Springfield. Absolutely. And I'll teach you how to make money on that. Oh, and we do have a bill going through the Senate right now that would make it illegal to declaw your cat. So I saw it did not pass, right? Oh, it passed the house. Oh, over in the Senate. Okay. Yeah, passed the house. But oh, it was the one about with the pet riding on your lap that didn't pass. Yeah, that one got 97 no votes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. Anything else that affects agriculture, Senator Halpin, anything else that legislation-wise that could affect uh, rural parts of our state, uh, which is our audience listening today in six counties? There have been some small bills, you know, around the edges. Nothing uh, controversial at this point um, that I'm aware of. I I can't think of one. Um, We'll go through some, I think, bigger bills this week. I don't really see anything on the horizon that's particularly uh, uh, divisive. Uh, that relates to, to agriculture. Um, uh, I don't, uh, unfortunately, I don't sit on the agricultural committee this year. Uh, I had over on the House side, um, but I think if something was coming across, it would definitely uh, percolate, and we'd be able to to report back. But so far, it's relatively quiet on our side. Okay. And are we feeling like a budget is going to be a positive thing this year? Um, I am hopeful, uh, Vanessa. I am the um, chief budgeteer for the House Republicans. Um, we are having some meetings, so um, really encouraged by that, that, that we as a caucus have been invited to the table. It's been some time since that has happened. Um, I think that's an indication of um, a new speaker and, and a new leader and, and uh, who, who actually have conversations on a weekly and sometimes a daily basis. Um, which is healthy. Um, so uh, we haven't gotten into the nitty-gritty of it yet, but um, I, I think that we can, um, for the first time in a number of years, uh, hopefully have a, a bipartisan budget. Okay. Good to know. All right. Thank you all for what you do in Springfield. I know it's not easy uh, to get together and make decisions. Anytime you get a whole bunch of people together, it is hard to make decisions. It's hard to get everybody on the same page, so appreciate what you do. All right. Let's jump uh, back in here with the uh, uh, 2023 Farm Bill. I know that is on the minds of everybody as we think about the future. This is the year. Um, Ron, you want to lead us through that discussion? Sure. So yeah, you're right. This is the year that uh, we write a farm bill. Um, in years past, it's it's been done on time, and it's also been extended to um, for a variety of reasons. Most of them are election related. Um, but this year, the the soybean association is it's got a couple things priorities that we've we're would like to continued is a, a very strong, sound, robust crop insurance program. Um, we would also like to see the reference prices increased and um, the ability for farmers to update their soybean base acres. Yeah, 
some people are predicting 89 million acres of soybeans uh, for the 23 crop. Um, but right now, I think the base acres are somewhere around 60 million. So there's almost 30 million shortfall in the, um, the safety net for soybeans um, with the ARC and PLC program. And so we'd like to have farmers who, who choose to voluntarily update their base acres. And the last thing is just put more resources into the, the, the farm bill. Um, you know, we, when you talk to legislators in D.C., when you ask about more resources and the farm bill, it's basically, ah, good luck. Um, but I guess I have a different point of view. If they can find money for helping Ukraine, the uh, infrastructure bill, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, if there's a will, there's a way to get it done. And so I don't... I argue that you can put more money in the farm bill because farmers need that safety net. They need that security. And and I, I said the last thing, but really the last thing I want to make sure is that the nutrition programs stay in the farm bill. Um, what better place to have nutrition programs for the people who need assistance in the bill that farmers who are producing the food for this country um, need that certainty and that, and that security and, and kind of backstop to make sure we can continue to be the, the uh, breadbasket of the world. Okay, let's run more. Holly Spangler, you've written many articles about the Farm Bill over the past couple decades. Yes, yes, and we just keep, we just keep doing it. I heard an interesting um, podcast over the weekend. It was the New York Times Daily Podcast, and they were talking about kind of that idea of like, you know, why do we keep as a government incentivizing poor uh, climate practices? And they were focusing on, you know, subsidizing insurance for housing, you know, or, or, or in, in like hurricane areas or places that were prone to forest fires, that kind of thing. But then about the middle of it, they kind of started throwing in crop insurance, which I thought was an interesting, and you know, of course, paying a lot more attention then, right? And uh, they were specifically talking though about crop insurance, you know, federally subsidized crop insurance for crops that are grown in climate sensitive areas, like places that have not maybe traditionally grown corn that are trying to now further west, further south, where there's more of a water deficit, um, you know, a lot of cotton maybe in other parts of the country as well. And just kind of questioning, you know, do we do we continue to support that? Um, do we continue to support, as a government, do we continue to support risky practices? And uh, on its face, it makes sense, but it raises the hairs on your neck about what about corn and soybeans in, in the middle of the country where we are positioned well to grow that, and it's not that kind of a risky business. But it is a backstop against, you know, that sort of... Um, weather outlier or whatever it might be, the 2012 kind of a drought, that kind of thing. Um, so I think we have to keep a close eye on that as, as agriculture and as our farm organizations are doing very clearly. Ron? So, Holly just said something that kind of jogged my thought process. The government incentivizes behavior by two ways. They either give you money or they put you in jail. Um, and, and so if you look at she mentioned the fringe areas of the Corn Belt. If you don't have agriculture in the rural areas of pick your, pick your state, pick your county, 
what happens to those people in that area, in those rural areas. If they don't have agriculture as an economic development driver for them, they're going to leave and go to the city. And so having crop insurance doesn't necessarily help every farmer, but it helps every rural community. Because if you take examples of 2012 that Holly talked about, um, there were people who, good prices, so they you know, pre-sold half of their crop before the harvest, had a drought, they only raised 30 or 40 percent. Crop insurance made them whole, made their communities whole, it made them be able to continue to pay their taxes to the local school district to contribute to the church, do what the, the rural mainstream grocery store stayed in business because of crop insurance. And mm -hmm. so that's my argument to why you can't, we have to keep crop insurance in, in the farm bill. Yeah, it's not like you're making money and can go to Mexico on a vacation yeah. with your crop insurance money. No. You're correct. And I think with the banking crisis, Chris Gavin, this is a great time to mention why crop insurance would be so valuable to the farm bill staying in the farm bill because if, you know, God forbid we had a tragedy and not have crop insurance, it, it could hurt many farmers and the rural community. Absolutely. Uh, crop insurance is is uh, been such a great tool for all of our farmers, and also it's just it makes much more sense than to have ad hoc programs. You know, if you in, you know if you don't have crop insurance and you have problems, and then you get other programs that have to be implemented for emergency situations like that. And I think I think it just makes much more sense to have a well thought out crop insurance program. And I would just say the biggest thing is is that it's not broke, so don't fix it. You know, it's been working. So I would hope they would leave that alone. Uh, I know something that we worry about every time the farm bill comes up. David Zimmerman. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I, I and when you think about crop insurance, you know, you got a one point five trillion dollar farm bill and crop insurance is seven percent of that so it's I, I think the, the appetite to reduce that would be pretty limited I would hope um, but I'm, I'm encouraged just you know if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act I know it it expanded on some existing farm bill uh, uh, land I think land conservation acts within there and funds it at about 9x of the 2018 bill. Now, I don't know how, if that'll be repurposed or, or how that money will be ultimately put into the farm bill, but I think it's encouraging um, that the willingness is there right now in the Inflation Reduction Act to expand on the farm bill. Okay. Go ahead, Chris. Well, one, one thing that's really important about uh, crop insurance, like as, we, as we're talking right today, um, I ran some, some numbers on um, some of our producers and uh, in 2022, the margin on corn was a dollar 87 a bushel and 393 dollars per acre, and this is the margin to break even. So that was really good, and we were seeing that. We're seeing the economic benefit of that. Soybeans was 305 a bushel and a, a 192 dollars an acre. Okay, 2023, we're going to talk about a drastic change. Um, corn, the margins on corn has dropped from $1.87 down to $0.57 cents a bushel, or $120 an acre. And the soybean went from that $3.05 down to $0.65 cents a bushel, or $40 an acre. So now we're talking, um, we're getting out of those crop insurance levels. So it is very critical. I mean, the economics in farming are changing all the time. 
and we've seen how inputs are rose so quickly uh, last year. I do think some fertilizer prices are starting to come down some and everything, but but I mean right now it's really really important. 2023 is a completely different year when we look at crop insurance. Okay, Rob Elliott, anything you want to add on crop insurance? Uh, I would echo Chris's comments. The dynamics of growing a crop are or uh, you have so much at risk. So uh, crop insurance would be a key component of uh, priorities. I would also uh, echo Ron's thought about nutrition, SNAP, those kind of things. Public nutrition needs to stay a part of the farm bill if we're gonna keep urban legislators engaged and part of it. Yes, and you know, we learned also Friday that SNAP also, you know, it affects our school districts. That's where the free and reduced lunch or breakfast, things like that come from, or that that's part of the legislation as well, so it all makes sense to stay wrapped up in one unit. The other, the other one that I, I would uh, say we don't want to forget is what what's called MAP and FMD funding. So trade uh, uh, efforts that help uh, make those possible financially. So how do we work with foreign countries that uh, in a lot of these emerging world economies, MAP and F FMD, MAP being market access program, mm -hmm. FMD foreign market development are really pretty critical if we're gonna continue some of those export efforts that are pr pretty huge for the corn and soybean markets, so. Absolutely. Jake, any final thoughts on the farm bill? Um, yeah, I like I like the SNAP and nutrition in the farm bill. Again, as we've spoken, it gives strength to it. Um, I just caution that this is an insurance program and a nutrition bill, not an environmentalist bill. Correct. Uh, I know that is something that has crept up, and I would like to keep that separate, if at all possible. Um, I know the big um, push at Farm Bureau right now is just to educate and come alongside of some of those new legislators that are on ag committees that have not been on ag committees before or have ag backgrounds um, to just be a resource for them and to give them the right resources so they can make proper decisions that you know don't destroy rural uh, economies because of potential environmental thoughts. And Dan Swanson, one of our local farmers as well, your final thoughts on the farm bill. Well, I agree with what's all been said already. The SNAP needs to remain within the farm bill. And uh, certainly the crop insurance is, is important to keep within there. So I really don't have anything else to say. Just uh, um, we need to contact our legislators as this moves forward to ensure our voices are heard, not only personally, but also through the organizations we're members of. Okay. And before we um, have a chance to hear from each of our panelists one more time, I do want to introduce uh, from the FFA chapters our officers from United and Monmouth Rose. Well, they have a couple questions for the panel. We very much enjoy bringing our young folks uh, who are going to be a part of the real world very soon into the equation. Uh, Peyton, tell us who you are and what your questions are. So my name is Peyton Curry, and as Vanessa said, I'm the chapter president at United FFA, and I'm also on the Section 4 officer team serving as the Sentinel. So I do have a couple questions, and my first question is kind of a big one. And seeing that Brazil is number three in corn production, number one in soybean production, along with that, the United States is a big partner in Brazil by sharing our technology and our tractors and our practices of farming that we use. So it's all, with all that being said, does Brazil have the power of the drive or the resources to eventually move into that number one spot of corn production and maintain their spot in soybean production? And if so, how will those factors affect our American markets, such as corn and soybean? Ron, you want to start? 
Yeah, they they do have that capacity to be number one um, in corn and soybean production in the world. Um, the last time I was there, they had 100 million acres of ground that they could put into corn and soybean, cotton, wheat production yet. Um, they, the European Union has got regulations on the grain that they import from Brazil about deforestation. So that is somewhat limited in the Amazon rainforest areas, but they have what they call the Cerrado, which is prairie ground, what we would call prairie ground, that they can convert from cattle production into grain production. So, and the effect that that has on the United States and our grain production is um, pretty substantial in my opinion because we would be the the, uh, the the exporter of last resort for China and some of the other countries. Africa is becoming um, a, country, a, a continent that is importing more grain uh, from from wherever they can source it. So it does make us, I've coined the phrase that that uh, Brazil or South America is going to do to us what we did to Europe back in the 50s and 60s. We, we became the number one exporter back in those times versus Europe. I think Brazil and South America will do that to the United States. It, it may not be in my lifetime, but eventually it will happen. Rob, do you want to take the Yeah, I agree. Uh, they have the capability to uh, to do a, a lot more from a production capacity standpoint. Our competitive advantage has always been our ability to export that crop and put it into other places in the world. Uh, a lot of investment in that South American area from a standpoint of logistics and certainly one of the areas that we have uh, rapidly neglected in our own country is that infrastructure. Things like our lock and dams, our, our, our river system, our inland waterways, our, our ports and roads and bridges, we've probably not invested as heavily as, uh, as they have to the south. Yes, I do have another one. So, me being from Kirkwood, Illinois, I don't know if you guys have ever really been there, but all there really is there is a post office and millions of fields. And going to school at United, I pass maybe four cars and a thousand fields a day. And it seems that every day there's more fields getting tiling and such. And for that pipeline, how would this affect the tiles that are already in the fields now? Because I know there's pipelines that have been in fields for generations. And now going through and ripping up the fields and putting in a pipeline, how will that affect the farmers with pipelines? lines currently and could that be a big concern for them? Uh, good question and I, I can certainly speak to that. Uh, the uh, the group that uh, um, we've signed on with being the Navigator group um, has put a lot of focus on this because it's it's really an important question. I mean a, a farmer makes an investment in that tile and, and he wants it to be viable for the long term. Um, so in the event that tiles need to be cut to lay the pipeline, um, what the Navigator Group is offering to the producer is um, there's three options to, to repair that. One, and certainly, certainly they cover all the cost. Uh, one option is that they will do it for you. Um, the second option is that you can bring in the original contractor of the, of the field tile. If you have a local source that, that 
put that tile in originally. They can be on site and do the repair, or the farmer can do it himself. Um, but it is definitely a focal point um, because, frankly, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline really soured a lot of, of our producers on that. They just didn't do a, a good job with the land restoration. That has to be put back in a certain way with the clay on the bottom. The topsoil is moved off to the side and then ultimately put back where it belongs. Um, and the tile is a big part of that equation. Um, so I do know that they, 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 also, they also pay the producer for crop loss. Um, out, out five years so you look at that that section of ground that was disturbed and if you had a 50% crop loss you get compensated for that um, multiple years so very important very important things and a really good question thank you very much Peyton Crane for being here hope you a lot where are you going to school um, I will actually not be attending school. Currently, I'm working on attaining my national EMT license, and my end goal is to be a career fireman. Fantastic. Well, you happen to have a fireman here today who's also a state legislator and done great things, so get a chance to talk with Senator Neil Anderson. Good for you, Peyton. You. Peyton Crane with us. Kendall Kane from Monmouth Roseville. Kendall, who are you, and what are your questions? Hello everyone, my name is Kendall Kane. I'm currently serving as a Monmouth Roseville FFA president. Along with Peyton, I'm also serving on the Section 4 officer team. I'm currently serving as secretary, and I think both of us can speak. It's been a pretty fun year, and I can't wait to see what the rest comes out to be. Uh, my first question deals with family farms. I know a lot of these topics that you've gone over today have always somehow ended up to back to the family farm. So my first question is, with all this being said, what does this mean for family generations? farms and what does a farm or a family farm look like in maybe the year 2050? Holly, you want to take that one? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the fact is, what is it, 96% of farms in Illinois are family owned. Thanks to the Illinois Farm Families Campaign, we are the 96. We know that very clearly now, hopefully, hopefully more um, all the time. And yet consumers believe, what is it, that less than half of farms in Illinois are, are uh, family owned. So. All that to say, yeah, I mean, anytime we talk about something affecting a farm, it's affecting a family farm. And uh, you're talking a different, um, you know, intergenerational um, transition plans and all those kinds of things that are, are um, federal and, and state policies affect. And, um, you know, economics affect us all, right? Whether, no matter what kind of family operation we're in. So to Chris's numbers earlier on, in terms of margins, that's, that's a big deal. And, and that's why crop insurance matters and why um, some of those safety, net, safety nets matter too. Dan, you want to take the 2050 part? Sure. Um, we're family farm going back into the early 1900s, um, fifth generation. We farm ground that my great-grandfather and two of my great-uncles purchased back in the 20s. And gosh, I, I, I think the, the family farm is a 96 percenter, which we are part of, is uh, we've got to continue to, to keep our farm strong and, and encourage our young people, our children, to be engaged in the farming opportunities yet today. FFA is a great program. 4-H is a great program to keep young people engaged to want to become part of the farm. And uh, that's the important part. In 2050, seems a long ways away. But uh, I've got a great grand—I mean, I've got a grandson. I hope someday he likes playing with the farm toys. Now he's a, a carpet farmer. I hope he keeps engaged with that—that uh, that idea of staying on the farm. But uh, um, so I have 
confidence and I have hope and that the opportunities will continue for our younger people to remain on the farm. So Kindle, maybe what else might happen by 2050? I don't know, Brendan. Will we? Will Brendan, your company have uh, pods that go out and deliver products to, uh, you know, smart farming and all that good stuff? You know, one thing about technology and moving forward, yeah, I'd never say never. I mean, when I started delivering seed, it was in the back of a pickup, and now it's a gooseneck and semi-trailers and things like that, and uh, tendering equipment that we've had. So yeah, I mean, I. Anything's possible moving forward, yeah. especially in agriculture. Well, luckily, we do have some precision conservation management practices that are helping us pinpoint how much nitrogen we may need or how much of this or that. So there's been some very positives with technology, and that probably should grow. Kendall, what's your other question? I know earlier the word embrace was used, so my first question is how do we embrace agriculture or embrace changes in agriculture? And then I've been filling out a ton of scholarships recently, and one of the questions I got on it was, do you think small town farmers have a voice in agriculture, and do you think they have a voice within Congress and stuff like that? And that's kind of one of my main questions on, do small town people have that kind of voice, and if not, how do they get it? Um, I. I will give a plug to Farm Bureau on this one, uh, particularly Illinois Farm Bureau. They do an incredible job of uh, reaching out, not just the farm family program, but the adopt a legislator program. Um, uh, they, they do a great job of educating those that are not familiar with agriculture and um, the benefits that it has for um, our uh, citizens, certainly in Illinois, um, but across the United States and, and across many continents. So. Um, I think there is a voice there. Um, they also have a, a very, very effective uh, program um, with their call to action. And um, I will tell you that as legislators, when we get those Farm Bureau call to action um, responses, we pay attention. So um, I, I think the voice, certainly in Illinois, is loud and clear. Great question, Kendall. Yeah. One of the greatest days that we get to experience in Springfield is coming up this week when the FFA young folks come down to Springfield and we get to see all the corduroy jackets in the hallway and you bring us a big basket of products that have been produced by Illinois farmers and we appreciate that and hopefully both of your organizations will be there uh, to be a part of that but that's how we keep them involved too and you talk about getting out to meet your legislators you guys do a great job doing that during that one visit to Springfield. Well, in the small town voice, I mean, they're sitting right here with us today. Um, that's that's our ability to interact with them, and I would, I'd commend them all on coming out and, and and meeting with us today. That's that's how that's how the process works. These are four elected representatives that uh, are meeting with constituents, and I know they do a lot of this, so that's, I'm, that, that makes me feel good about our ability to voice our opinions. And keep having young people. I would add to the uh, embrace word engage, and, and by that I mean the grassroots nature of everybody sitting in this room is the powerful part of what makes us relevant. So, Yeah, uh, you want to remind her real quick, the Next Generation Fuels Act, which is in Congress, came out of one of these. You bet. You bet. Kendall, what's next for you? 
Next year, I plan on attending SEC in Burlington, Iowa, and getting a degree, a degree in agriculture. Right now, I'm thinking ag business and maybe pursuing being an ag teacher or going into sales. Uh, I've been thinking about being a sales represent, representative. It's been a big idea for me, but also an ag teacher. I've, I've had a really good ag teacher, Mr. Kilburn, who's impacted my life, and I feel like I could also impact students in my future. Good for you, Kendall. Kendall, uh Kane and Peyton uh, Crane, so much uh, appreciative that you guys came out to this today. I hope you enjoyed it. We did, thank you. And you guys are sticking around for lunch, right? Yep. Okay, good. You get to talk with these folks. All right, um, it is already 11.58, so I want to give each of you an opportunity to say your final words as we begin a new planting season here in 2023. Jake Armstrong, you are the Farm Bureau President, sir. It's all yours. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, I just want to say thanks to everyone in this room. Uh, this is something I look forward to every year to be a part of. Um, um, as she said, I am a young whippersnapper, and it's nice to glean wisdom from people who have been around a, a little bit longer. Um, so I just thank you for your participation, and I always appreciate being here. Okay, Ron Moore, uh, congratulations again on Master Farmer and uh, what you do for the land. We appreciate it very much, and very, very uh, good luck to all of you soybean farmers. I don't know if you got to hear yesterday, but um, you need to say, I like planting soybeans. Well, yeah, I did listen last Friday. Or Friday, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, Contrary to popular opinion of that group, some people do like to plant soybeans. Uh, um, Somebody tell you. Brian Poston that. <laughs> but thank you for having me again, and, and uh, it's been enjoyable. And uh, the only final comments I'd be, you know, be safe this spring for all the listeners out there because we're gonna farmers are gonna be out in slow moving equipment and and it, you come up on them faster so just be safe and uh, if farmers out there take a break when you get tired absolutely david zimmerman ceo of big river resources thank you for being here thank you and uh, just thank you for the opportunity to kind of let everyone know what we're seeing in our industry because it really is a sea change that we're seeing right now um uh, the, the conversion to low carbon um, is, it's here and it's 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 here to stay and I guess I would I would ask um, we're, we're we're ready to participate in that we have a low carbon fuel um, it's homegrown it's renewable um, you know if the rules are put in place I would just ask um, let us have the tools to, to do that and let us have the tools to compete okay Senator Neil Anderson as always glad to have you back appreciate it yeah. No, thanks, Vanessa, and thanks to all the panelists. Um, you know, um, in Illinois, we are uh, number three in the nation when it comes to exporting commodities. We're number one economic driver is ag and agribusiness. The only way forward for the state of Illinois um, is with ag and ag business. Um, at the top, whether that's our family farms or that's John Deere, Caterpillar, FS, um, ADM, all those play a crucial role um, in the state of Illinois. And like I said, the only way um, we stay at the top is with uh, Ag in Mind. So thank you for having me. Great points. Thank you very much. Representative Dan Swanson, thank you for being here. And also, best of luck to you and your family. Safe farming uh, plant this planting season. Thank you, Vanessa, and thank you for your team putting together another great show. As, as always, you set that bar higher and higher every time, and we appreciate that. And just to echo Ron's comments on uh, farming operation this year, be safe. And, uh, boy, I can tell you what, dropping calves on a day like today is a lot nicer than it was Saturday. <laughs>
And I uh, appreciate you guys being here. We'll have a longer interview with both of you after you get done uh, in uh, Springfield this next week. State Representative Noreen Hammond, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Vanessa. I, I look forward to this and um, certainly the, the folks that you gather together on this panel and, and the information they have is very valuable for all of us. So um, again, I wish um, all of our folks involved in um, all aspects of agriculture uh, safety um, this season season and, and great success. Um, Rob and I have already talked and there's going to be plenty of moisture, um, so everything's going to be okay. Yeah, Brendan and I talked Friday. We're trying to get an appointment with Mother Nature, but she will not take Brendan's calls. She's hearing none of it. <laughs> Speaking of Rob Elliott, Rob, thank you, longtime member of this panel at Illinois Corn. Appreciate you uh, being here again. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Vanessa, and good job as always. And I, and I will apologize to the group and listeners. I have probably failed today in my role as uh, chairman of the Ray Diffenball Memorial Humor Committee. So I wish I'd injected more, but we'll. We, we tended to st stick to business today. Yes. Uh, Chris Gavin also with us. Uh, speaking of Ray Deffenbaugh, he was on your, your board for a long, long time. And Dave Zimmerman, of course, knows uh, God rest his soul. We loved Ray. He was a big part of this program. Yep. And uh, not only we... Not only is Illinois a great agricultural state, but right here where we're at, we're some of the best producers in the whole world. So not too many things that we're best at in the whole world, but we, our corn and soybean farmers do it as well as anybody. So congratulations to them. I hope they have a very safe planting season. And I, I don't think I've ever had to say this before, but good luck in the banking industry. <laughs> So there's uh, thank you. <laughs> you know? uh, it's all, it's it's fine. I it's fine. know. The, the, uh, it was nice that the tournament got going uh, the same week as that was going on. So I think the NCAA, NCAA basketball tournament took some people's mind off of it. But it's all good. And uh, seriously though, if you have any questions, talk to your yes. local bank. It's safest place to keep your money. And there's all kinds of tools that they can use to help you. So. And Holly Spangler with us, Prairie Farmer Magazine. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, Vanessa. I, I concur with exactly what uh, everybody said. You've raised the bar on a good discussion here. I was sitting here doing some math following Kendall's question. Um, Kendall and my son, Nathan, are the same age and, you know, an FFA friends, I think, for a while and spent the day together Saturday at the state FFA record book and star farmer interviews and all those kinds of things. And I was just doing the math on her question about 2050. You know, Nathan wants to come back and farm, go to college first, and so theoretically he would graduate in four years and then go work somewhere for a little bit and come back. So he could be back farming by 2030. By 2050, we plan to have this thing handed off, right? Right. <laughs> and on to him and uh, whoever else might be involved at that point. But um, to everybody's point, that takes engagement all along the way from a number of levels of, of generations to uh, to stay engaged with our farm organizations and our legislators and everybody that's involved in, in making sure that that path can happen smoothly. You got it. Appreciate it. Okay, and Senator Mike Halpin, you'll, you, there's a couple things you'll learn. Number one, your stomach's probably really hungry by now because the food comes in, so it we're all ready good. to eat. Number two, I always make sure that we kill two birds with one stone because of our busy legislators. That's why Mayor Rod Davies, City Administrator Lou Steinbrecher are here uh, to uh, to have lunch with us as well. And thank you for being here. I hope this has uh, been valuable to you. It has. Uh, thank you for the invite. I hope it's the first of many. And uh, thank you especially to the, the listeners out there that are doing the truly hard work day in and day out. 
Okay. And Brendan Marshall, our corporate uh, partner, appreciate it very much, sir. We'll do it again in the fall. Yeah, I look forward to it. Um, very good discussion today, and um, I'd just like to leave with say, everybody be patient. It'll get done, and let's all stay safe. Let's do it. All right, full of grace here with our lunch. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We will have more discussion of agriculture as always on WRAM. Have a safe planting season and a prosperous one as well. You've been listening to the 2023 FS Ag Roundtable. W231DA WRAM Monmouth, your home in the country, FM 94.1 and AM 1330 WRAM. From ABC News.